about Trump is he's undermining his own policy goals or he's undermining his image or this isn't what he campaigned for so he's being contradictory and I think we really have to focus instead on the impact of the lies that he's telling they're not without purpose they're not without effect and we have to talk about who's being harmed by them no matter where you go on this earth, you could see African people once again proclaiming that they will no longer abide exploitation, they will not abide subjugation, and they will not stand for white supremacy or neocolonialism, which, as we know, is just white supremacy and blackface. Uh, nor do we feel the need to maintain the capitalist system that gives an institutional base for the suppression. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance and Alternative News from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam. And today is the first in a series of shows marking important anniversaries in 2017. 30 years ago, on October 15, 1987, the African leader and visionary Thomas Sankara was assassinated after making revolutionary changes in the country that was named Upper Volta by French colonizers and that he renamed Burkina Faso, which means the land of upright men. Also, 50 years ago, Cuban revolutionary Che Guevara was assassinated on October 9, 1967 in Bolivia. Later in the show, we'll hear voices from a recent conference here in D.C. that explored the continuing significance and life work of each of these men. Also, media critic Janine Jackson joins us to talk about lies, damn lies, and official lies coming from the Trump White House. All that and more is packed in today's show, starting with our headlines. Immigrants and advocates from across the country are wrapping up more than a week of activity in Washington, D.C., designed to persuade the Trump administration to grant an extension for the more than 300,000 people receiving temporary protected status as a refugee from war, violence, and natural disasters and other dangers in their home countries. The Trump administration has announced a phase-out of temporary protected status programs, or TPS, with tens of thousands of Haitians losing protection early next year. Marlene Bastian, executive director of Haitian Women of Miami, told fellow immigrants rallying in front of the White House on Tuesday that Haiti, which has been battered by earthquakes, storms, and a cholera epidemic, cannot absorb returnees. We are here joining our voices together with the people of Honduras, with the people of Salvador, Nicaragua and all the nations with temporary protected status to send a strong message to the Trump administration and tell him what we want. What do we want? Number one, we need TPS renewal for 18 months. Why is it important for us to have 18 months? 
because we need time to work with members of Congress to find a permanent solution for the half a million Hondurans, Salvadorans, Haitians, Nicaraguans, and others with CPS. That's why. According to public reports, there are about 58,000 Haitians in the United States under the TPS program. Their status is set to expire on January 22, 2018. And besides Haiti, the list of TPS countries includes El Salvador, Honduras, Nepal, Nicaragua, Somalia, South Sudan, uh, Sudan, which ends November 2nd in a few days, Syria, which extends through March 31st, and Yemen extended through September 3rd, 2018. TPS benefits to Guinea, Sierra Leone, and Liberia ended earlier this year after the Ebola outbreak was brought under control. While the Republican-controlled Congress did not respond to those rallying for TPS, it did raise controversy when Vice President Mike Pence cast the deciding vote overturning a law that allowed Americans to file class-action lawsuits against banks and other financial institutions. Senator Elizabeth Warren, who championed the protections as a key tool of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau that she helped to establish, said that Congress had sided with banking lobbyists and their big donors. Millions of Americans of all political parties think the game in Washington is rigged against them. And this vote is Exhibit A. Companies like Equifax and Wells Fargo have hurt millions of consumers and then turn around and try to escape accountability using forced arbitration clauses. The Republican Congress hasn't done a thing to help the people hurt by Wells Fargo. The Republican Congress hasn't done a thing to help the people hurt by Equifax. Nope. Instead, tonight, they are actually taking away one of your few legal tools to hold companies like Wells Fargo and Equifax accountable. This is shameful. In news related to climate change and the planet, waterborne illnesses are on the rise in Puerto Rico in the wake of Hurricane Maria, and health professionals fear the storm's aftermath could unleash an epidemic on the devastated island. The death toll from the storm rose to 51 on Tuesday, with the two latest victims dying of leptospirosis, a bacterial disease usually spread by contact with contaminated water. Authorities are investigating an additional 74 suspected cases of the infection. And in Texas, at least three people have died due to exposure to contaminated floodwaters, with two people dying of a rare bacterial flesh-eating disease. On a brighter note, members of Congress did introduce legislation to directly address the climate crisis this week. On Monday, Senator Cory Booker, Democrat of New Jersey, was joined in Newark, New Jersey, by community leaders and advocates as he announced legislation to protect communities of color, indigenous communities, and low-income communities against environmental injustice. According to Senator Booker, the Environmental Justice Act of 2017 seeks to address the many communities that disproportionately live near hazardous waste sites and landfills, are exposed to pollutants at a higher rate, and are more likely to experience environmental health-related conditions like asthma. On the ground's own Michelle Roberts, who is also National Co-Coordinator of the Environmental Justice Health Alliance, said... This bill is much needed at this critical time when both public health and the environment are under attack. 
It will provide protection for communities that have been permitted to suffer the disproportionate burdens of toxic pollution, end quote. The bill would require federal agencies to strengthen legal protections and take action through the permitting process. The bill would make the 1994 Executive Order on Environmental Justice law and expand its protections for people of color and low-income communities. It would also establish requirements for federal agencies to implement and update a strategy to annually address negative environmental health impacts and also make it easier to file lawsuits. Civil rights have to include fundamentally the right to breathe your air, the right to have plant tomatoes in your soil. Civil rights is the right to drink your water. And so this bill gives people the right to take action, to sue their governments as necessary. It gives them the right to take civil rights claims uh, to make sure that they can find justice. Here in D.C., Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard on Thursday held a press conference with supporters and co-sponsors of her bill, the All Fossil Fuels for a Better Future Act, the OFF Act, which will put the United States on a pathway to replace fossil fuels with 100% clean energy generation and use by 2035. This legislation eliminates tax giveaways to the fossil fuel industries and provides support to transitioning workers who will be impacted by this generational change. The OFF Act has been endorsed by more than 100 clean energy, climate change, and environmental justice organizations. And those are our headlines and happenings. When we come back, lies, lies, and more lies from the Trump White House. Stay with us. I'm walking, here's the day and I'm talking. By you and me, I'm hoping that you come back to me. That was I'm Walking by Fats Domino, who joined his ancestors at the age of 89 this week. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam. And it might be cliche at this point, but as I look at today's media landscape in the United States, filled with lies, spin, and erasure, I cannot help but recall the quote from Joseph Goebbels, Hitler's so-called Minister for Public Enlightenment and Propaganda. He said, a lie told once remains a lie, but a lie told a thousand times becomes the truth. If you repeat a lie often enough, people will believe it, and you will even come to believe it yourself. If you tell a lie long enough, it becomes the truth. Well, joining us to help us unpack this and other media issues in this latest extended segment on media and culture is Janine Jackson, host of Counterspin and director of FAIR, Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting. Welcome back to the show, Janine. Happy to be here. Well, there's so many things happening. Just right before I'm talking to you, I hear that Trump's 
Federal Communications Commissioner has proposed a change that will allow the right-wing media conglomerate Sinclair Media to own even more stations and distribute their Trump commercials or editorials around the country. So there's a lot going on, but I want to start with your stories from Counterspin that you want to highlight. There is a lot going on. Thank you. I have to call attention to one segment that I did that I'm sure folks will have heard about. I spoke with uh, Nusrat Chaudhary from the ACLU's Racial Justice Project about the FBI's creation of a new uh, proto-terrorist uh, identity, which is black identity extremists. This is the FBI creating out of whole cloth, a definition of a category of person who is very dangerous. And their, their description says, uh, it is very likely black ide- identity extremist perceptions of police brutality against African Americans spurred an increase in premeditated retaliatory lethal violence against law enforcement and will very likely serve as justification for such violence. So what we have here is a setup by um, the FBI in which we have a pretense that anybody who's protesting police brutality is by that fact guilty of a kind of extremism that calls for action by the country's counterterrorism division, you know, of the of the country's most powerful law enforcement. And it's a really, I think, chilling and, and frightening development, you know, in which we are seeing, you know, of course folks remember COINTELPRO, you know, the FBI surveillance and invasive behavior into black activism and not only black activism uh, in the 50s and 60s and even into the 70s. And this really is no different. You're identifying a kind of thought crime, which is to be concerned about, they say, perception of police brutality, we might say the reality of police brutality, they're saying that means you are predisposed to carry out violence against the police and therefore you need to be moved into this category of essentially terrorists. It's a really um, disheartening and troubling development and of course our guest from the ACLU was saying, you know, they're, they're calling for, they've got a FOIA request, they want to demand the FBI explain what they mean by this term, how they're going to use this term, but I think we can see it as law enforcement looking for opportunities to surveil um, civil rights organizations and black justice organizations, Black Lives Matter and this sort of thing and it's really I mean, I say something to keep an eye on, but it's really something to be very, very deeply concerned about, I think. So I, that was uh, a preeminent segment that we talked about recently. Um, and another thing is that I think is also important on another level was about Amazon's bidding war, all these cities around the country competing to get Amazon's second headquarters. And here we really see the priorities of local governments in a way that's also very disturbing, where they're willing to give up millions of dollars in subsidies to this company, which is a hugely profitable company. You right. know, they're going to make money no matter what. And here we have all these municipalities saying, oh, essentially, yeah, we will cut money from our schools, from our health care, you know, because where else is that money coming from? And we'll use that to provide tax subsidies to Amazon in exchange for a certain number of jobs, which may or may not uh, appear, and which even if they did appear, would in no way pay back the millions of dollars that they're offering up out of the public funds, you know, to this private corporation. So two very disturbing developments that I think folks uh, should be watching. 
I, I have one question about the whole black identity extremist category. So this is something that's actually in place now. I thought that it came from kind of a leaked document that it was something being circulated. Is there any idea how they're actually implementing this new categorization? Well, that's what we're looking for. Yeah, the report was actually an FBI intelligence assessment that was leaked to foreign policy that identified this category. But it was very much a working document. It wasn't like, we're going to see if maybe we can start talking about these people. They, this is a category that one can understand that they have uh, taken up. You know, the question mm-hmm. of what they're going to premise on, predicate on that, what they're going to do with that category, that's the question. And that's what folks like the ACLU and the Center for Media Justice uh, with this FOIA request, that's what they're trying to get at. I think our guesses are, are good guesses. I think the history of the FBI is, um, you know, tells us what we need to know about that. And I think the very premise, this definition that perceptions of police brutality have spurred an increase in retaliatory violence against law enforcement, the premise is flawed itself. Right. Um, That's already a problem. So the very fact that they're thinking along these lines is worrisome even before we get to what they're going to do with it. Well, we're definitely talking about that here and people are talking about it here and across the country. So as these FOIA requests come through and they they may take a while or these investigations into this continue, I'm sure that we'll hear more news about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I uh, basically have been obsessed with lies coming out of the White House here in D.C. And I see them as connected to each other in the sense that the latest in terms of uh, Trump getting involved in this tweeting match or argument with Representative, is it Frederica Wilson out of Florida? Basically calling her a liar, calling the the widow of the slain uh, soldier, Green Beret, a liar. And basically, you know, disrespecting them and and then having him followed up by John Kelly. It's, it's like an official lie coming from the White House. And I don't know if it's really presented that way in much of the media, that we now have official lies. And we have elected representatives and um, the, the widows of soldiers disparaged and all for the sake of him, you know, feeding this red meat to his base that, that wants to see black people disparaged. And this is coming on the heels of the same thing being done to black athletes on an NFL field. And so it's just very disturbing to me. I, I'm not really sure if I really see it presented that way in terms of a critique about what he's doing. Even when people are critical of what he's doing, I don't know if I see it framed in that way. Well, you don't usually. I mean, I think there are a few people. Charles Blow at the New York Times, I think, has been pretty solid about saying this person is lying. These are lies. You know, they're lies with a certain intent. But it's really much, much more common to see things like this op-ed I saw in the Washington Post. The cascade of missteps that turned one White House error into a messy week. You know, and this is columnist Philip Bump talking about the very incident that you're describing. Um, and, you know, he's got a kind of cute flow chart about first Trump said this, and then he, then he took that back and said something else. He doesn't talk about 
lying, first of all, it's that they're missteps, they're mistakes, you know, and I find that especially infuriating. You know, mistakes imply that a person is on a course to do something that's ethically neutral or something that you wish they would succeed in, whereas when you call them lies every time, you're making clear that this person is involved in a project for which lies are necessary, right? You know, and when you call it a a, a wreck, oh, you know, Trump, what he's made a mess, you know, a, a mess only hurts the actor, you know? So what I need media to start doing, to do more often, is to talk about, first of all, to call lies lies, which is, you're absolutely right. We have a word for this, and the word is lie. But also to talk about who's being hurt by Trump's lies. Because I think media have this kind of political perspective where they're always talking about Trump is, he's undermining his own policy goals, or he's undermining his image, or this isn't what he campaigned for, so he's being contradictory. And I think we really have to focus instead on the impact of the lies that he's telling. They're not without purpose, they're not without effect, and we have to talk about who's being harmed by them. And I've become so frustrated, Esther, with mainstream media seeing their role as just kind of, oh yeah, there's a nightmare unfolding and we're just going to narrate it. You know, we're just going to tell you some of the things that happened. This is a time when a press corps needs to step up. You know, we are on a dangerous course. People are being harmed in real time. And media have to just be against it. You know, (laughs) I mean, I don't think that should be that much of a stretch. Instead, what we get is this continued, especially in some media like MSNBC, for example, I'm thinking we're still getting this obsession with Russia when you have a population here being harmed uh, and when you have uh, continued proof that the election had nothing to do with with Russia, it had something to do with uh, voter suppression, it had something to do with those same populations continuing to be targeted for repression and, and violence, but that's not what I see coming out from even what are considered progressive media. Yeah, it really is past time, I think, to be focused in a direction in terms of, I'm not saying we don't learn from the history, that we don't learn from the 2016 election, we absolutely have to, but we have to be in the here and now, and actually offering some bold vision, you know, something that's going to pull us out of this this nightmare that we're in, where every day you wake up and think, oh my God, what happened today? Oh God, today he threw paper towels at Puerto Ricans. You know, you just don't even know what crazy thing is going to happen next. And again, there's kind of a sideshow aspect to it. What is this, what is this man Trump going to do? Isn't, isn't he wacky? But we have to bring our, our focus back to the actual harm that's being done, the actual policies that are in place, the actual use of, of law enforcement to do this, that, and the other, because right. it's not a joke. There are real things that are being, some of these, of course, are problems that pre, predated Trump. Of course, we know that. But now is a time, I think, really for a bold vision to talk about alternatives, to talk about things that we could be doing differently and that folks are doing differently. And I think that is the only way to kind of um, give us hope. Yeah, I know. As far as narration, I couldn't help but think about, that's how I feel about the coverage of Puerto Rico, that it's being narrated, that there isn't a sense of the outrage and urgency as people continue to be harmed by not having, you know, clean water and food and adequate food. And, uh, and, and I also feel that there isn't the investigative 
type of operation that used to be on the you know, available at at media organizations to really look at what's happened in Niger, and for that situation to go for so long until a reporter happened to ask about, <laughs> well, why haven't you commented on this? Just shows that we really have fallen down in terms of of holding government accountable for our actions abroad. Well, yeah, yeah. And media working too much backward from what politicians are saying, you know, when in fact we need them to be looking at what's being done around the world, which is not necessarily what politicians are going to be talking about. It's been very frustrating for me to see media saying, hey, wait, what is the, U- what is the U.S. doing in Africa, you know, in the whole continent, when we know that journalists and activists have been trying to get folks to focus on U.S. military maneuvers in sub-Saharan Africa and all throughout the continent for decades now. You know, um, Mm -hmm. reporters have been saying, wait, why are we sending all this military stuff, you know, to these countries? What's going on here? What is the effect of our, quote-unquote, anti-terrorism work in Africa? Yeah, and I guess the final thing on that for me is the failure to really connect the invasion of Libya and the spread of terrorists and weapons and all types of harm, you know, from that conflict throughout West Africa and and throughout much of Africa. And instead, of course, Libya is only mentioned in the context of this kind of back and forth game about Benghazi and Hillary Clinton, or, you know, uh, whether it's uh, Obama administration and versus what this administration is doing, (laughs) instead of really what has happened on the ground to harm people in Africa and basically destabilize a whole region. Exactly. We have to connect. History doesn't start fresh every day. You know, things that the U.S. does abroad have repercussions. We see them play out. We can't simply describe each one fresh as though they had no relationship to one another. But, you know, when you started off talking about you tell a lie often enough and people start to believe it, and maybe you do too, you know, you have the New York Times editorializing that American presidents who took military action in the last in recent decades have been driven by the desire to promote freedom and democracy well you know if that's going to be the undergirding story that news media are telling us well then yeah we're not going to connect um, weapons flooding through Africa with the what the US did in Libya we're not going to make those connections we're encouraged not to make those connections because after all American presidents are only driven by the desire to promote freedom and democracy that's actually mitigating against our understanding of U.S. foreign policy, making it harder to understand rather than making things clearer for people who are looking to make sense of it. Well, I don't know a smooth uh, transition from this very serious topic to something a little lighter. I find myself being kind of behind on the movies that I really want to get to see, you know, people are telling me about movies I need to get to see. So there's Marshall about Thurgood Marshall. Uh, I've been uh, reviewing movies for the Alliance of Women Film Journalists. And a lot of those are movies by and about women. 
And so this week, or I guess coming out this week, there's this indie film called Novitiate about a young woman going to become a nun, basically. At the time when the Vatican II rules were changed, which basically wiped out the traditional ways that women were nuns. (laughs) It's very emotionally fraught movie, but it's very, very interesting. It gave me a lot of insights into that faith and way of life that was available then. And I guess the other thing that happened, see, Wednesday night, uh, is that I participated in this big historic photograph at the National Museum for Women in the Arts here in D.C. And it was a photograph of women artists here in, in the DMV. And these photographs are being taken all around the country. And so there, I must say, there must be hundreds of women there. And they said that we may have even beat out the size of the group in New York, which is... <laughs> amazing so that was fun well that sounds great you know I, I I mean I also am fall behind in terms of movies and art shows that I get to see and I encourage us both to do more of that because I think the transition from the serious things we were talking about is that we need art and culture it's one of the most important ways that we are able to vision different kinds of society and vision yeah like like what happens next yes yeah Yeah. exactly exactly besides giving us some kind of release or relief from a lot of the tensions and stresses that we kind of get from the news and allowing us to see one another in a more whole way. I think it can be very helpful. We ought to think of it almost as exercise. You know, you need you need to do these things in order to kind of stay on course. One thing I did do was to go see a play here in New York called The Band's Visit, which is an interesting kind of small little musical about an Egyptian marching band, I believe, who get misdirected um, and sent to a tiny little town in Israel, which is not the town that that they intended to go to. They come to a tiny town where the inhabitants say nothing ever happens. But what I remember about it is that at one point, there's a song that the lead actress sings where she's talking about how she, as an Israeli, grew up listening to the radio with her mother. One of the the band leaders says, you must not know much about Egypt. And she says, oh, but I do. And she sings a a beautiful song about Um Kulthum and Omar Sharif, you know, and she's remembering these influences, these artistic influences that she had as a young Israeli child in the middle of the desert, thinking about, of course, Um Kulthum, the iconic Egyptian singer and, and Omar Sharif, you know, the Egyptian actor. And she, she talks about what that meant to her to just get some vision of what people were like elsewhere. And to me, that speaks to the international power of art and of culture. And it's really very well expressed in terms of a person saying, no, you actually need other cultures. You need art from other cultures to hope and dream. And that, that had shaped her life. And it's a beautiful song, but also I think... Um, kind of what we're talking about here, about the importance of culture and helping us picture the world in a different way. I forgot to mention that a big highlight at the National Museum for Women in the Arts uh, Wednesday night was the fact that there is an exhibit, I want to call it Black Abstract, because it, it is exhibiting Black women abstract artists. And, you know, it's not a show I probably would have even known about if I hadn't gone. 
and just seeing art in a different way. And it's not like art that I do, but just I found it so transformational to stare at these uh, pieces. And but one was called Orange by an artist, Joan Mitchell. She was born in 1925 in Chicago and she died in 1992 in Paris. And I stood there and just kind of was mesmerized for a long time watching it. And I've just enjoyed, as you just said, how it transported me for a while away from all these other things that I'm thinking about, worrying about, and just look at this painting. I'm so grateful for that, for that just moment, you know. And to feel some connection with another person, you know, I mean, that sounds so wonderful. People don't generally even associate black women with abstract art. And I think just that's just powerful in itself that you could see this, this whole space that we don't hear so much about. Yes. All right. Well, things will continue to happen and there'll be uh, so much for us to talk about in the weeks ahead. I hope that we are still able as the free press to have our conversations and to continue to follow media and be critical. I've been speaking with Janine Jackson, media critic, director of FAIR, Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, and also host of Counterspin, a nationally syndicated program on media. Thank you, Janine, for joining me again. Thank you. La paix était venue de loin des asservis il y a cent ans contre la cynique malice métamorphosée en héros colonialiste et ses petits servants locaux just tuning in, that was a crowd singing the national anthem of Burkina Faso, written by the late President Thomas Sankara. And this is On the Ground, on thegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And next is the first of several segments we plan to do in the coming weeks, focused on important anniversaries being marked in 2017. Today's focus is on the anniversary of the assassination of Thomas Sankara, the revolutionary African leader who became president of the country that he renamed Burkina Faso in 1983, and Burkina Faso means the land of upright men. Sankara was assassinated by an armed group of 12 other officials in a coup d'etat organized by his former colleague, Blaise Compare, and that was 30 years ago on October 15, 1987. The theme of the conference this month 
was Pan-Africanism Today, a time for transcontinental cooperation, and it was organized by several organizations, including Friends of the Congo. The segment starts with Nayaka Lakoge, founder of the Revival of Pan-Africanism Forum, who emceed the program. When we do those conferences, people say, you know what, uh, you know, why are you been celebrating Sankara? So people ask me that question, why are you talking about Nkrumah? Why are they dead? But you know, I've been living here for, for, for quite some time, and then every day I hear about some people who contributed greatly to world history, uh, like George Washington, uh, who was a slave master, <laughs> Thomas Jefferson, who was a slave master, and then, um, you know, there were great men that contributed greatly, you know, to bring something to world civilization. But every day they celebrate them here. But when it comes to celebrate our heroes, I see some unconscious Africans asking me, why are you talking about Sankara? And we have to talk about them because uh, Africa, for the last 600 years, we've been under subsequent systems of oppression from slavery, colonialism, Jim Crow, segregation, lynching, apartheid, neocolonialism, globalization, and poverty, and the same system is today oppressing. And now, we were, we were fighting against uh, the European, America, France, England, but now we have China. China is there, so we have all those powers going back to Africa, taking the lands of Africans, and any initiative undertaken by any African that do everything possible to undermine our spirit of self-determination. That's why we talk about the people who set the examples for us, you know, to try and take our destiny in our hands and then to be the change we seek to see in the world or to be the change we want to see in Africa. We will talk about Sankara, we will talk about Nkrumah, and we will talk about all the people who did the right thing for Africa and the global African diaspora. We, of course, talk about Fidel Castro, Che Guevara, and all those who stood for justice, freedom, and solidarity. Omari Musa, I will represent the Socialist Workers' Party. As we know, Thomas Sankara was heavily influenced you know, by the Cuban Revolution. And then, you know, we've been connecting, uh, you know, this uh, struggle, everything we've been doing. And the topic of this conference is about transcontinental cooperation from South Africa to, uh, to Colombia. Then everything that is related to uh, about Palestine, uh, Cuba, Venezuela, you know, we've been talking about that. Omari Musa is going to show a segment and then, of course, introduce uh, the Cuban uh, who gave was at the conference in Namibia. Today, not only are we celebrating the life and legacy of uh, Tomas Sankara, it's the 30th anniversary of his assassination uh, and the overthrow of the popular revolutionary government he led. This week, we also celebrate something else. Uh, that is the 50th anniversary of the death in combat of Ernesto Che Guevara. Those two things go together. Uh, both were revolutionary Marxists, communists, who dedicated their energies to the advancement of workers and peasants around the world. Both had a world perspective on the struggle of the oppressed and exploited. Both sought to organize what has been called the wretched of the earth, to rise up against imperialism and take power into their own hands and cast aside the local lackeys that support imperialism, as Thomas Sankara showed. I have a very interesting book. I urge all of you to get a copy of it. 
The name of the book is We Are the Heirs of the World's Revolutions, going back over 150 years that Thomas Sankara absorbed. He fought to lead uh, workers and farmers everywhere and made big strides. I'm not going to go through all of the accomplishments of the Burkinabi Revolution, uh, but what I wanted to do is point out in this introduction that the Cuban Revolution that Guevara helped to lead continues to lead the toilers today. If there is an example you look for in the urge to fight for your liberation and the liberation of world humanity, it is Cuba today. It is one outstanding example of what a revolution is, as was Thomas Sankara. This fighting solidarity between Cuba and the peoples of Africa is growing even stronger than the days when Sankara was alive. Sankara would salute all of the people of Cuba for standing strong in their fight and vice versa. The fight in Africa that Cubans contributed to, including the independence of Namibia, the solidarity of Angola, and the beginning of the downfall of apartheid in South Africa. The third speaker is going to be Sean Blackman, and he's a member of the Answer Coalition. And he's going to talk about you know, the transcontinental cooperation, and he's going to try and connect what is happening on the continent of Africa and what is happening here in the U.S. Sean, please. I want to thank the Forum for the Revival of Pan-Africanism for inviting me to speak. I always enjoy attending the conference, and I'm glad to be able to speak this year. As Anyaka said, my name is Sean Black, and I am with the Answer Coalition, which means Act Now to Stop War and End Racism. Also a member of the Party for Socialism and Liberation, and I co-host a radio show here in Washington, D.C. called By Any Means Necessary, uh, along with my friend and comrade, uh, Eugene Perrier, who's also here. So basically, I want to speak briefly this evening, if I could, about Sankara and the revolutionary principle of self-determination and how that spirit and that principle is playing out in different movements across the African world today. Because, you know, I'm of the opinion that for any colonial subject, for any neo-colonial pseudo-citizen, uh, for any member of an oppressed community, there's always a kind of bubbling impulse to take the reins of those institutions which govern your life, to seize control of a society hell-bent of robbing you of your full personhood and remaking it in your image and likeness so that your material condition mirrors that tenacious dignity which you refuse to forfeit. Yes, whether expressed in a reactionary way, a liberal way, a progressive way, or a revolutionary way. This desire for self-determination is as natural as the very beating of our heart and is as instinctive as the inhaling and exhaling of our breath. Our dear comrade Thomas Sankara understood this, felt it himself on a, on a molecular level which is why it was so important to transform the former upper volta from a colony controlled first by explorers of another shade and hue to a neo-colony controlled by folks whose face resembled that of the people but whose interests lied only with themselves and whose loyalty lied with the oppressors of old to finally becoming Burkina Faso, the land of upright men 
where a person could have input in international development and actually benefit from their labor, to actually get to enjoy some of the fruits of the wealth that they produce. Uh, thereby creating an incentive for the people of that nation to act in the national interest because now the national interest in a more immediate sense is their interest. So this change from the upper Volta to Burkina Faso, then it wasn't just like a cosmetic change. It wasn't just, you know, a hip thing to do because that's what the rest of the continent is doing. It, it, it very much required a change in consciousness of the people so that the actual shift in society that must take place on a material basis can happen. 30 years after Sankara's death, we're seeing a kind of resurgence of self-determination across the African world with formations experimenting with different forms of radical democracy, all of them designed to repudiate the hierarchical and patriarchal character of imperialism and to make the welfare of the collective the chief concern, not the acquisition of capital. In Jackson, Mississippi, we've seen the rise of Cooperation Jackson, a movement that focuses on underemployed and unemployed black and brown workers using a co-op structure uh, to develop what they call, quote, an alternative built on equity, cooperation, worker democracy, and environmental sustainability, end quote. And um, I believe it was last week we had a brother on named uh, Ajamu Nguaya, who's a um, Jamaica-based uh, educator, and uh, he's co-authoring a book on uh, Cooperation Jackson called Jackson Rising with Kali Akuno. And what he told us is that central to the whole Cooperation Jackson structure is the people's assemblies. Now, these are groupings with no set hierarchy that act as a form of direct democracy and participatory democracy uh, that engages in uh, collective decision making, which is then carried out by a task force. And that construct comes from something called the Jackson Cush Plan, uh, which is a construct of self-determination with its roots in the Republic of New Africa, itself uh, a group that was based on principles of land and what we in the local excuse me local movement were called uh, black radical self-governance and autonomy. And this trickled down to the New African People's Organization and the Malcolm X Grassroots Movement. So now we look to Jackson, Mississippi, of all places. Uh, and when we talk about self-determination as the word, we see it there made flesh. Uh, we see similar developments in South America, with, excuse me, South Africa, with the economic freedom fighters who describe themselves as radical, leftist, anti-capitalist, and anti-imperialist, and who ultimately believe that political power without economic emancipation is meaningless. And as the inheritors of the South African liberation movement, they explicitly state their desire to establish a society based on revolutionary values and to support anti-colonial and anti-imperialist movements the world over. And we can see Sankara's influence, I think, in the EFF's sort of explicit opposition to the oppression of women, their opposition to sexism, homophobia, and all these other uh, oppressive ideologies. So it's become clear that a new generation of African people are recognizing themselves as living under neocolonialism 
And it's no coincidence that we tend to see a lot of overlap in their program and in their tactics because they realize that no matter what issues plague us as oppressed people, whichever one you can talk about, ultimately capitalism lay at the root of these ills. Therefore, the destruction of capitalism must be central. Now, right here in the U.S., the Movement for Black Lives uh, a little while ago put out a, a beautiful platform that not only called for an end to racist police terror and for cities to invest in the education, health and safety of marginalized communities, but it called for community control of institutions, reparations and political power. So you see how, you know, these same themes, these same motifs sort of keep cropping up. And these movements are basically asking the question, what can we do to wrestle power from the state and from the state's minions so that we can sort of have more control over the lives, our lives, our families, and our communities? Now, whether we're talking about Jackson, Mississippi, or South Africa, the black folks in Colombia that's protesting human rights right now, the folks in Togo who are standing up against nepotism and corruption in government, no matter where you go on this earth, you can see African people once again proclaiming that they will no longer abide exploitation, they will not abide subjugation, and they will not stand for white supremacy or neocolonialism, which, as we know, is just white supremacy and blackface. Uh, nor do we feel the need to maintain the capitalist system that gives an institutional base for this oppression. And speaking of neocolonialism, you know, it's funny. Sankara said that these neocolonial politicians and figures, they have contempt for the masses, right? They're driven only by their own selfish interests and do not um, uh, hesitate to employ, quote, the most dishonest means, engaging in massive corruption, embezzlement of public funds and properties, influence peddling and in real estate speculation, and practicing favoritism and nepotism, end quote. Hmm? They steal. They steal. What's the word, brother? Voulé? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? That's what it is. And so we know a lot about neocolonialism in Washington, D.C., right? Like, I mean, let's look at our mayor, Muriel Bowser, right? Black woman, young, native of this city. Sounds good, right? But we're talking about someone who in her time as mayor has actively worked to have a negative impact on the material conditions of poor and working black folks in this city. And I can think of two major ways she's done this off the top of my head. Number one, housing, certainly. All right. People like her are in cahoots with developers like Jeff Graffis and Sanford Capital to push black folks uh, out of their homes, lie to them and tell them they can come back. And uh, to ultimately push them out of the city so that folks with more money can live here. And that's why the chocolate city ain't so chocolate no more. So who's pushing back against this? It's these very same grassroots folks. It's the tenants down in Congress Heights in Southeast. It's the tenants uh, over in Brooklyn Manor in Northeast. And they're working with organizations like uh, 1DC and Justice First. Because you know their attitude is that like, we've been here. We have a right to, to be here. 
And we don't intend to go anywhere, not without a fight. You see what I mean? So even right here in this city on a very real basis, I also organized with a group called Stop Police Terror Project DC. And one of the things we've been able to achieve is getting a piece of legislation called the NEAR Act fully funded. And what that does in essence is um, pretty much create a violence interruption program for poor and working black communities so that they don't have to deal with the police. Because every community needs security. But oppressed communities, least of all, most of all, I would say, do not need the presence of the police because we see what happens. People are killed. People are brutalized. People are arrested and funneled into the uh, mass incarceration system. And uh, the good folks, our friends at uh, PACA, Pan-African Community Action, they're working on trying to get uh, community control of the police in a real way here in Washington, D.C. So we're glad to be working with them that as well. So when we take a look at all these different uh, self-determination movements that African people are engaging in here in DC, here in the United States, in South America, on the continent and beyond, how do we measure its success, right? How do we know that we're even moving the needle? Well, I know here in, uh, in the US recently, uh, the FBI has come out with this thing that basically says now that uh, that wants to call folks black identity extremists. And it's very interesting because the examples they give in their language talk specifically about the Black Liberation Army and groups that were around in the 60s and 70s. Which is interesting because it's like, you know, if you study the history of Pro and stuff like that, this is, it's like, it's like a rerun. Because back then they called them, what, black nationalist hate groups? And now anyone identified with those same sort of politics now we're black identity extremists. And that doesn't even make sense. What is a black identity extremist? I identify as black. Is that what makes me extreme? And, and it doesn't even really give a kind of, it's just this super vague sort of thing. So it's obvious that it's been developed to cast a wide net over anyone who is critical of white supremacy, anyone who is critical of capitalism, to sort of, you know, again, make them this sort of boogeyman element. So the same system, the same state apparatus that assassinated uh, Sankara, that assassinated Patrice Lumumba, that assassinated Malcolm X and Maurice Bishop and all these types of folks, is now seems to be ramping up to launch uh, yet another repressive campaign. So where do we go from here? I think the most important thing we can do is continue to push forward with this spirit of Sankara and with the understanding that if we are going to have the changes that we seek, ultimately we're going to have to take our hands and reach them into the soil so that we can destroy this system that sought to make us something less than human and create a society where we can finally stand in the fullness of upright personhood. Thank you. I'm going to call now Maurice Kani, uh, friends of the Congo. He's going to tell us a little bit what are the actions that we can take, you know, to so that you know there can be like a follow-up, you know, conversation after this conference. Maurice Kani. Good afternoon, everybody. 
we've, as Nat just shared, uh, we've been organizing these uh, conferences for, for a number of years. And some of us were insistent that we don't just gather people and they come and they hear great speakers and then they leave. Uh, there are uh, some concrete actions that each and every one of us in here can take so that uh, this is a part of not only the continuum that Naka just uh, shared, but a part of the Pan-African struggle that's unfolding on the African continent. And what has been transpiring over the last few years is this tremendous youth vitalism that is confronting the neo-colonial regimes that have been imposed on African people, uh, whether it's the economic freedom fighters in South Africa or you have uh, Ballet Citoyen in uh, Burkina Faso or Yanomar in, in Senegal or in the Congo where I do a lot of work with uh, the Telema movement. So there are uh, strong movements that are unfolding on the African continent, pan-African movements that uh, need our support, need our solidarity. And because we're here, right in the heart of the empire uh, in the United States, particularly here in Washington, D.C., we are strategically placed to join them in solidarity. So there are a series of um, actions uh, that um, we're going to request of you or ask of you uh, to help advance the movement that's unfolding on the African continent and uh, in the African world. If you're not a member of the organization, we encourage you to join up the organizations that, have, that are here. We have the Answer Coalition. Um, Omari is here, you pre presented earlier with the uh, Cuba Support um, um, Committee. Uh, uh, we have um, Pan-African Vision, of course, NETFA, uh, Friends of the Congo, we have a table outside. So if you're not a member, we encourage you to join one of the organizations. Um, even if you don't join, support us. Most of the organizations are volunteer-led uh, institutions. Uh, so they can use their support in your intellectual support, uh, your material support, and your financial um, support. Uh, you can follow us at Friends of the Congo. We not only um, put out information about the Congo, but uh, Africa uh, at large. Uh, on Twitter, we're at Congo Friends, at Congo Friends on Twitter. And for our website to, to support the youth movement that's unfolding in the Congo, it's Telema, T-E-L-E-M-A, Telema.org, T-E-L-E-M-A. These are the ways in which you can um, be engaged, remain engaged with us, and support the movements that are unfolding on the, on the continent. Sign up for the email list, support our local radio station, uh, join an organization that's here involved uh, uh, in the movement here in the room. Uh, I gave you the information already for our friends of the Congo. Again, it's Telema, T-E-L-E-M-A.org. Uh, follow us on Twitter at uh, Congo Friends. And um, you can uh, be very well plugged into everything that's uh, unfolding on the African continent. So thank you very much, and uh, thank you for coming out today. And uh, we really uh, appreciate your support. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much, Maurice Daniel. You have been listening to speakers at the 6th Annual Thomas Sankara Conference held October 14, 2017 at the Festival Center in Northwest D.C. The conference is named after Thomas Sankara, the revolutionary African leader who became president of the country that he renamed Burkina Faso, meaning the land of upright men, in 1983. Sankara was assassinated by an armed group of 12 other officials in a coup d'etat in 1987. 
The theme of the conference was Pan-Africanism Today, a time for transcontinental cooperation, and it was organized by several organizations, including Friends of the Congo, which you can reach online at friendsofthecongo.org. That's friendsofthecongo.org. You can also email africaworldnowproject at gmail.com. That's africaworldnowproject at gmail.com. And that will do it for today's show. I want to thank my guest, media critic Janine Jackson, and thank Michelle Roberts for her environmental justice reporting. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital in Washington, D.C. You can reach us and listen to all of our shows on our website, onthegroundshow.org. Please like our Facebook and Twitter pages at On the Ground Show. I'm Esther Avam, reminding you as always, keep raising your voice. Peace. Thank you.